If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a controversial acquittal in a Calgary courtroom has raised questions around the defense of extreme intoxication. Also, the Consumer Choice Center reacting to the Alberta government's decision to implement a new 20% tax on vaping products. Plus, we hear from the executive director of the Orphan Well Association about how this $100 million loan from the province is going to be put to use cleaning up Orphan Wells. When I issued that apology during the trial, it came from my heart and I meant it and I think they know how remorseful I am about everything that happens. So. And I, I think everyone accepts that he's remorseful, but should there be some accountability still? That, that is uh, Matthew Brown, now 29 years old, uh, former student at Mount Royal University, former captain of the MRU hockey team, uh, reiterating his apology. And uh, this coming after he was acquitted by a judge who accepted his defense. Now, this is a situation uh, that happened two years ago. And everyone agrees and accepts that it was Matthew Brown who broke into the home of a Mount Royal University professor, uh, Janet Hamna, at her Springbank Hill home, and attacked her with a broom handle. He was charged with assault, with a weapon, and break and enter. But his argument was that he was in a drug-induced state of psychotic delirium, that he had been drinking heavily at a party and then had taken magic mushrooms. Now, I think people would accept the idea that if you're wasted out of your mind of drugs or alcohol, you're not yourself. But you have to take some accountability for your actions because you made the decision to make yourself intoxicated. And this has been a challenge for the courts over the years in in how to deal with this. There was a big change about 25 years ago. A Supreme Court case in 1994 uh, dealt with the case of a a defendant who was acquitted on a charge of sexual assault because of his argument of extreme alcohol intoxication. This led to Parliament making some changes to the criminal code and what's uh, known as Section 33.1 that deals with this defense of self-induced intoxication. So that came into play here. Uh, There was a case uh, just uh, last month, I think, in Edmonton, where similar arguments uh, came into play there as well. So how do we reconcile and balance all of this? And and are there some potential issues here with this part of the criminal code? Well, joining us for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Stephen Penny. He's a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Stephen, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about 33.1 uh, and why it was added to the criminal code and, and what it's there to do. Well, you're absolutely correct that it was added to the criminal code after concern about one case in particular uh, that you referred to, where a severely alcoholic uh, man who had had a tremendous amount to drink 
claimed that he had lost consciousness and lost conscious control over his actions, and he committed a, a brutal sexual assault of an elderly woman uh, who sustained very severe injuries as a result, and he was acquitted. And this, I think, understandably uh, concerned and, and possibly even outraged a lot of Canadians, and Parliament was moved to introduce Section 33.1, which takes away any possibility of using this defense for certain kinds of crimes, not all crimes, so not murder, for example. One can still claim that you lack the intent to kill on the basis of of using some sort of intoxicating substance like alcohol. But for crimes like sexual assault or other forms of non-sexual assault, then assuming that Section 33.1 is good law and that it's constitutional, uh, that self-induced or voluntary intoxication uh, is not a defense. But that was the provision that apparently the judge in this Alberta case struck down as being inconsistent with the Charter of Rights. Now, how is this different from the, the concept of not criminally responsible? Because, I, I mean, it's, it's obviously similar in some yeah, respects. It, it is very similar, and that's a, a very intriguing and difficult question that both Parliament and the courts have given somewhat ambiguous responses to that, I, in my opinion, we're still trying to work out in the law where I think there's a need for, for further consideration and, and potential reform. So the, the basic idea is that the Supreme Court of Canada has issued rulings that largely take the defense of not criminally responsible, what we used to call the defense of insanity, off the table if someone has voluntarily used some sort of intoxicating drug, including alcohol. So where there has been the use of drugs or alcohol, knowing that there are drugs or alcohol that have mind-altering effects, then you can't really claim the defense of insanity uh, for the most part. And so it becomes a question of whether or not that led you to be unaware of the consequences of your actions. And then depending on the nature of the offense that you're charged with, you can either use that as a defense or not use it as a defense. Right, because, I, I mean, I guess the difference here is that someone who is consuming alcohol or taking drugs, that, that's a conscious choice they're making, right? And, and we don't want that to be an excuse that I'm going to go commit a crime later on today. Uh, this will be my alibi. I'm just, right. I'm going to get loaded. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's very unlikely <clears throat> that a person would get away with such a strategy. So the idea that you can get so highly intoxicated in a sort of deliberate and calculated way such that you will either be incapable of understanding what you're doing at the time you commit an offense or will somehow be able to fake having been in that state and mm. fool the court or fool a jury into believing that you didn't know what you were doing. I don't think there's really any credible evidence that that's, that's a realistic concern. Uh, but there is a legitimate public concern that people who engage in inherently dangerous or risky behavior, for example, by becoming dangerously intoxicated, perhaps with some degree of knowledge that they tend to become violent or lose control when they, they become intoxicated, that there may be some justification for imposing liability, some form of criminal liability for doing that. But the problem is that the approach that Parliament took wasn't to say, okay, we're going to criminalize the act of becoming dangerously intoxicated or, or using uh, an extreme or ingesting an extreme amount of some sort of intoxicating substance. Instead, what Parliament said was, we don't care what your actual state of mind was at the time you committed the offense. We're going to pretend that you were sober. And so you do have cases, and we've seen a few of these over the years, even though they're very rare, where people engage in 
perfectly reasonable, socially acceptable behavior, ingesting small quantities of drugs or alcohol, and in some cases, perfectly legal substances, and then having highly unusual atypical reactions where they have a legitimate claim to not being aware of what they're doing and doing all kinds of crazy things that are atypical of their personality and where it's entirely believable that they had no idea what they were doing. And so to say that you should be responsible for committing a serious assault or sexual assault when you had no awareness or control of what you were doing, despite the fact that you didn't do anything wrong in terms of getting into that state or at least nothing that is approaching the wrongfulness of, of committing a you know, voluntary conscious assault, there seems to be a problem with that. And that's what the courts have picked up on uh, among those courts that have struck down Section 33.1. It violates fundamental principles of criminal responsibility that we want people to be aware of what they're doing in order to ascribe responsibility and punish them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I mean, we have a criminal offense of, of impaired driving. I, I, is, is, that, is that unique in that sense, where it's a criminal charge that is predicated on somebody being impaired, and the more impaired you are, presumably then the, the more trouble you're in, the more you violate it. That's correct, right? Because there's, there's a voluntary choice entailed there, where you make a deliberate choice to become intoxicated, to drink or to use drugs, and then you make a choice to get behind the wheel. So that's inherently dangerous. We know that. And so I don't think there's any trouble in saying that you are deserving of punishment or sending a message of deterrence to society you know, not to do this because you know, you're capable of changing your behavior. You're capable of responding to incentives. I shouldn't do this because it's wrong and because I can get in trouble. But that's not necessarily the case if you sit down and you know, smoke a joint or have a few magic mushrooms, uh, or have, you know, a small quantity of alcohol. And then because of your unique, um, you know, biological makeup or some sort of undiagnosed pre-existing condition or just some quirk or fluke of nature, you end up in a delusional or psychotic or dissociative state. And you go and you commit a crime, admittedly a very serious crime that causes harm to individuals and to society, but you had no conscious awareness of what you were doing. Well, arguably that's akin to someone who suffers from sleepwalking, who while in a completely unconscious state goes out and commits a serious crime, but the law is pretty clear in those circumstances that while we might find that person to be... um, you know, subject to supervision and review on the basis that they might constitute a future danger to the public, that were not justified in punishing them because they didn't really realize that what they were doing was wrong. They had no conscious control of their actions, and they can't be held responsible for a condition that they were born with uh, that has a, a medical or biological basis. So with regard to this decision today, in, in the case of this student, so the, the judge then has essentially said that, that Section 33.1 is, isn't valid. Correct. And so where, where does that leave this section of the criminal code, you think? Well, remarkably, it's a state of ambiguity that's existed for several decades now. So we've had this legislation for a long time, and we're only starting to get some appellate decisions from the courts of appeal. Actually, we haven't even had a court of appeal decision, to my knowledge, but it's working its way up the courts in Ontario, at least, and it may do the same in Alberta now, where we're finally going to get some clarity. So perhaps within the next you know, two or three years, the Supreme Court of Canada will finally rule on the constitutionality of 33.1. Usually it doesn't take this long for the constitutionality of a provision like this, which has been vulnerable to a constitutional challenge from the day it, it came into force, uh, to actually have some clarity from the courts. And, and my prediction is, although 
I've been known to be wrong in the past, is that <laughs> the Supreme Court of Canada will strike this legislation down, taking note of the fact that if we're concerned about future dangerousness, there are other ways of dealing with it other than punishing people. And if we're concerned about the inherent culpability or wrongfulness associated with getting dangerously intoxicated, then again, there are more narrowly tailored ways of dealing that other than this legal fiction, this pretense that you know, you're responsible for your actions no matter what if you voluntarily become intoxicated, which does not sit well with our ordinary understandings of criminal responsibility. Uh, now, you said on Twitter, you said, I wouldn't have said this even five years ago, but I'm increasingly of the view that Section 33.1 is doomed. So what, what, what has changed in the legal landscape over the last five years? Well, it's hard to pin that down, other than the fact that we now have several decisions, uh, particularly from Ontario, of courts that have found that this does not conform to the Charter, that it violates the right to be free from uh, the, the right to, to liberty, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So that's a you know, sweeping provision in Section 7 of the Charter that really binds Parliament to you know, fundamental principles of, of criminal responsibility, among other things. The basic idea that if we're going to punish someone for his or her acts, we want to ensure that that person had some degree of awareness, some degree of conscious choice, some ability to choose whether to do wrong. And if you're in one of these states, genuinely in one of these states, where you have no capacity to control your actions, no conscious awareness of what you were doing, then to say that you were you know, responsible um, you know, does not sit well with our, our basic understanding of what criminal responsibility is. So I think you know, the courts are finally sort of starting to realize that this provision, even though it stemmed from some laudable motives and some concerns about the safety and security of, of Canadians, that it just doesn't, it's, sort of, it's a step too far in terms of violating fundamental principles of criminal law. And you can imagine, like, what if you had a family member or friend that you knew was a good person, knew was generally a responsible person who was nonviolent, who had, like, a, a very unusual, unpredictable reaction to, you know, a drug? And maybe mm. there's some degree of fault to be ascribed to that person for, you know, taking the magic mushrooms and they'd never experienced that before and not being in a safe and secure environment. And, and there may be some degrees of responsibility that can be debated about that. But then to say that you're responsible for committing an assault or a sexual assault, even though you had no idea what you're doing and no one could have predicted that you would have had this re incredibly rare reaction, I don't think that would sit well with many Canadians. So even though we sympathize with the victim in this case and we like to have accountability in criminal justice, I think we also have to be attuned to the fact that there's some really bad luck involved here and that this could happen to anyone despite the fact that it's extremely rare. And so it's, it's, I think it's, we shouldn't be so quick and reflexive in saying this person should be held accountable for the consequences of his actions given that perhaps those consequences were so far-fetched and unpredictable. Very interesting. Uh, Stephen Penny, we'll leave it there. I appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for your insight on this. You're quite welcome. All right, that is Stephen Penny, professor of law at the University of Alberta. So uh, this judge today uh, has decided that 33.1 is, is not valid, and therefore he is able to accept the defense offered by the accused. We talked a bit about this yesterday, some of the uh, tax increases that have been a part of the first two budgets from this UCP government. And, and some of them are, are a little more subtle than others, right? I mean, there's the question of bracket creep, uh, the concern about that, the education portion of the property taxes. But one in particular I wanted to focus on was the Alberta government's decision to implement a 20% tax on all vaping products. 
Now, the argument from the government is that this is meant to discourage youth use of vaping products, whether they be nicotine or cannabis or whatever. Uh, but, of course, there's some additional revenue coming in from that. That may be part of the, the impulse as well. Uh, but if the, the aim is it for it to have an impact in terms of reducing youth use rates, is there also the potential of unintended consequences here, uh, i.e. pushing more people toward the black market? And certainly, as we've seen with uh, some of the, um, the lung illnesses in the United States and, and some in Canada, that there's a real concern about the safety of black market products and what might be in those products. So that's a big issue. There's, there's also the question, too, of, well, what about the harm reduction benefits of, of e-cigarettes? And if we're trying to discourage youth uh, to use these products, are we also discouraging smokers from making the switch? Uh, the uh, Consumer Choice Center has some concerns about the approach the Alberta government is taking. Joining us uh, on the line is uh, David Clement, North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center, consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, David, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me back. Uh, I guess, I mean, Alberta is also arguing that, well, we're doing what other provinces are doing, which I suppose has some truth to it. That doesn't necessarily justify it, does it? No, no, I certainly think that the Alberta government is capable of uh, of evaluating policies without making the same mistakes of other provinces. And so it's a real shame that they're using that as the crutch to justify uh, to justify a policy that, from our view, is just going to push consumers to black market products, which we know have dangerous consequences. Right, and, and 20%, I think some people were kind of surprised by how high that, that was set at. Uh, 20% taxes is fairly substantial. What, what do you make of the, the, the number they went with? Well, yeah, it's 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 extremely substantial. I mean, especially when we're talking about cannabis products. So cannabis products have all sorts of syntax um, added in. There are production taxes along the way. You have uh, your retail, like your sales taxes in various provinces. Um, you, you have all of these taxes, and now you're going to throw on another uh, 20% on top of that for devices or liquids, it really is, on the topic of cannabis, pricing legal uh, products out of the marketplace. Because anyone who has, has talked to someone who was a regular consumer, let's say prior to legalization, or doesn't buy from legal outlets right now, you know full well that all of these products are readily available on the black market. You can order them to your door. They're easily accessible. And so the larger the price disparity between legal, regulated, and, and safe products um, and illegal products, the more likely people are going to be um, going to be incentivized to buy those illegal products. And all of the research shows us, especially from the CDC in the United States, that many of the lung illnesses that we do see coming are from illegal black market products where they're using additional additives that aren't in the regulated products, and that's what's making people sick. And so um, in terms of public health, it actually runs in the opposite direction of what the Alberta government is looking to do. Uh, look, I mean, I suppose it's it's true that youth can certainly be price sensitive, um, and, and I sure. think there's a legitimate concern about youth using these products in the first place. But, I mean, are, are there other ways we can address that side of it and, and not getting these unfortunate unintended consequences that we're likely to see here? Of course. Um, of course there are. And I think that the real issue here is that by acknowledging that youth are price sensitive, it seems like the province has just given up. They said, okay, well, 
we know that youth are going to buy these things anyway, um, so let's jack the price up so that we can discourage them from buying it. Well, it's already illegal for youth to have access to these products, and if they are still having access, well, then we have to ask ourselves the question of why. Um, do we need to have better enforcement on the retail side in terms of if retailers are not doing their due diligence? Should we re-look at the penalties for those who are caught selling to underagers um, like they do for tobacco products? Mm-hmm. I think those are all valid questions if the question is access. Um, and that actually goes to serve uh, the solution of solving youth access because it actually does something about where they're, where these products are obtained at the point of sale. Um, so that would be, I think, a much more productive conversation. And it's a real shame that um, that the government is, is going to add this additional tax to protect youth, um, but what they're also doing is they're throwing adult consumers under the bus. Um, right, yeah. Saying if you're, a, if you're a cannabis consumer and you want to enjoy um, safe and regulated vaping products, well, we're going to hit you with the 20% tax because we're trying to protect kids. And, and the same thing for adult smokers. If you're trying to make the switch from cigarettes to the less risky option of, of nicotine vape devices, we're going to hit you with a 20% tax because we're trying to protect kids. And so there's a, there's a, a swath of adult consumers out there who are saying, totally valid concerns in trying to protect you. But why are you targeting me in the process and the legal consumers who are allowed to have these products and make those decisions? And so um, in, in many senses, I think it goes too far. Yeah, and I think there is that uh, that public health concern. I mean, if, if we want to talk about the public health benefits of discouraging use, we got to remember that if we're discouraging use, we're potentially discouraging harm reduction. Uh, and, yeah. and we know that there's a public health benefit for smokers making that switch. I, I think we should be concerned about putting any kind of obstacles in the way of that switch, and, and we might be doing that here. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge barrier. Um, on both sides, whether it's nicotine or cannabis, and both are problematic because the general uh, consensus is that that vaping is a much safer uh, way of consuming. It's bound by, or it's it's built with the principles of harm reduction, which I think are totally valid. Um, If people are going to consume these products, if they're going to consume cannabis, one, I want them to have the choice to consume a variety of different products depend, depending on what their uh, preferences are. And two, I want them to be able to choose, to be able to choose reduced risk products, whether that be vaping devices or edibles or anything in that um, kind of product category. And so making reduced risk products uh, more expensive just seems counterintuitive to the principles of harm reduction, which for the most part, most governments embrace is a valid point of view. Well, David, uh, we'll leave it there for now. Much more at ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. Appreciate your input on this. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Rob. Appreciate it. All right, that's David Clement. He's a North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. So their disappointment uh, with the Alberta government's announcement uh, that a 20% tax on all vaping products will be brought in once this budget passes and is implemented. Now, that's on top of the excise taxes on on cannabis products. The Alberta Cannabis Council uh, says we're now looking at basically a 44% tax on cannabis vape products as a result of these changes. So we heard the Premier talk recently about the idea of some further investment into the cleanup of abandoned or orphaned wells. 
as a way of uh, addressing the environmental side of, of that problem, but also as a way of getting people back to work. Uh, laid off workers in the oil services sector can easily go in and, and do this kind of work. Uh, so yesterday, the premier made an announcement that the uh, government is going to be providing a $100 million loan to the Orphan Well Association. Today, I'm pleased to announce that the government of Alberta is extending a $100 million loan uh, to the Orphan Well Association to speed up well reclamation and completion in an investment that will, will we estimate create up to 500 direct and indirect jobs by decommissioning approximately 1,000 wells and moving more than 1,000 environmental site assessments for reclamation. Uh, and uh, in the coming weeks, the government will be introducing a full suite of products covering the entire life cycle of wells from start to finish. Minister Savage will have more to say about that. So this is a very important announcement about getting uh, oil field workers back to work right now when we need it. There is more investment coming into the oil patch, and we believe there's a path forward through pipelines. There is a path forward for growth in, the, in, in our energy sector, but we know that there, we need to give a a lifeline to some people who are out of work right now. This $100 million investment, uh, the 500 jobs we believe it will create, uh, will be a difference maker for many Albertans who are struggling right now. All right, so that from the Premier yesterday. So $100 million loan uh, to the Orphan Well Association to help decommission about 1,000 wells. Joining us to talk a bit more about this work and the work the association is doing. Very pleased to welcome in the program uh, the executive director of the Orphan Well Association, Lars DePont, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Lars, appreciate making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, just for people not familiar with the association and in terms of the role and mandate you have, uh, just give us kind of an overview of, of where you fit into the grand scheme of things here. Sure. Um, well, first of all, we're a, a nonprofit organization, um, and what we are is a delegated authority of the energy regulator. Now, what that means is the energy regulator has certain powers within legislation to deal with sites when there's not an operator around anymore. So, for example, a company that goes bankrupt. Um, those powers allow for the regulator to do the decommissioning and reclamation work on those sites. So the regulator designates us to do that work. Um, so we have those sort of similar powers as the regulator in that scope, um, but they have to be orphaned. And so, I mean, to provide a little clarity, an orphan is a site where there's no um, financially or legally responsible party anymore. And within the oil and gas industry, there's a lot of um, working interest partners or fractional ownership of sites. Um, so we don't we deal with those sites. The, um, an active company would deal with that if they're part of that organization. Um, um, but but we deal with the ones that are are orphaned, and so there's it's actually a legal definition. The regulator has to go through a whole, whole bunch of um, clarifications and, and uh, reviews before they get designated as an orphan. Um, but after we get that documentation from the um, energy regulator, we are able to do the decommissioning and reclamation work. And and how is that done then? I mean, do do you have a, a staff that that does this? Do you do you contract out with certain companies? Who actually does the work? Yeah, so, so we have a, a staff uh, internally. We've got about uh, 18 employees in our office and a number of support staff who help um, that are contractors. But we actually designate another organization as our prime contractor. Um, so we have about 18 prime contractors that have a number of crews. Some of them have, you know, three or four crews depending on the size. Um, but that prime contractor is the one who's actually boots on the ground doing the work. 
we're responsible for making sure that the technical specifications are being met and uh, overseeing the overall process. And then that prime contractor is also involved then in selecting the uh, the subcontractors who are also involved. And so it, it's sort of kind of a, like a pyramid component where we're at the top managing everything and then it trickles down from there. Uh, so the uh, $100 million loan then, so how is, how is that going to be put in, into action? So, um, you know, uh, that, that is going to be focused on sites that are in um, basically the southern part of the province, and so trying to reduce the impact specifically with landowners um, that are, are, are entitled to get service rights board payments, um, but the, the company's not around, so the government takes care of that. So we're going to be focusing on landowner impacts. Um, so that's everything from, from um, wells, uh, facilities, pipelines, to remediation and reclamation. So right now we're just starting the process and uh, starting to put our plans together. But obviously, I mean, we're, we're looking at staffing up as well. We've got a few job postings that are out there right now. We are um, doing a, an RFI to increase our contractor base, and then we'll be kicking all these sites out here um, to start work on in, in short order. And about how many orphaned wells, wells that are classified, have that legal designation as orphaned, how many are there in Alberta right now? Right. So, um, you know, we kind of put them into two categories. We have um, wells that need to be decommissioned and the sites reclaimed. And we've also got sites that we've done the decommissioning work on and they just need to have a site reclamation done. So, you know, in aggregate, we've got about 6,500 sites and about half of those, a little bit more than half, are wells that need to be decommissioned and reclaimed and then the balance that have already been decommissioned and need to be reclaimed. So it kind of gets a little uh, complicated in that component about all these numbers. Mm-hmm. And things are moving quite dramatically right now, too. I mean, we're, we're going to do about uh, a thousand sites this year, but, I mean, there's a whole bunch of steps in the field that need to be done. Um, there's obviously the final step on cutting and capping the well, and then there's a whole bunch of paperwork requirements happen. So, I mean, this is a very busy time of the year for us to get those last components done. Now, explain how this, I mean, in terms of how the association is funded in the first place, but also then how this loan will work, at at what point it's going to be repaid or where the money to repay it is going to come from. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to highlight this. This is a loan as well. This isn't this isn't a, um, a grant or anything like that. So um, there's an annual levy that all producers who work in Alberta pay into. It's a, I'll call it the orphan uh, well levy. And each company pays a proportionate share of that levy relative to their provincial liability on conventional um, oil and gas. So, you know, if you own 5% of the liabilities, you pay 5% of the orphan levy. So um, we're sort of that intermediary. So um, the government will be giving us this loan. We'll be putting that money into the field. And then the producers are going to be paying that orphan levy. We take that and then we'll be repaying the, uh, the government from that fund. Um, now, the actual specifics on the timing haven't been finalized. We're just in, um, negotiating the final terms of the, the loan agreement. But the mechanics won't change. All right, well, more details, including uh, some of those uh, job postings, as you mentioned, up at orphanwell.ca. Lars, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Thank you. All right, that is uh, Lars Dubois, Executive Director of the Orphan Well Association, uh, talking a bit more about some of the work they're doing uh, and, and how this all works. So they operate under legal authority from the Alberta Energy Regulator. Uh, the funding comes from upstream oil and gas uh, industry to, to abandon and reclaim orphan properties. 
Uh, so there's a legal definition that, that, that applies here when, when uh, Will is considered to be orphaned, and that falls to them. Uh, so they've already posted some job opportunities. This loan is meant to help them expand some of the work they're doing. And uh, in doing so, obviously, there's the environmental benefit of cleaning up these wells, but uh, getting people back to work. And that was certainly the emphasis from the premier yesterday. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.